Thanks for joining us for today's message. We encourage you to visit southernhillslv.com to watch or listen to past messages. We hope you enjoy today's message from God's Word. Good morning. Are you glad to be in church today? If you are, let's say amen. Praise God. Amen. Man, I'm excited to have you. Today we're going to be studying from the book of Luke, chapter number 3. So very excited to get into that. We're in the midst of a sermon series entitled The Wonder Years, the episodes of his backstory. This six-week sermon series is part of a larger study through the Gospel of Luke. We're studying verse by verse, chapter by chapter, studying Luke's perspective on the life of Jesus inspired by the Holy Spirit. Today, we're in the midst of a smaller series in the beginning of the book of Luke called The Wonder Years, where the writer of Luke is attempting to allow us to see the episodes of Jesus's backstory before he goes public to the entire world about his messiahship, about his calling to come and save the world. And so that's what we've been studying. Six episodes specifically. And two weeks ago, we talked about Jesus as a baby. Last week, we talked about teenage Jesus. Today, we're talking about, well, his family background. And today's sermon, Luke wants you to know before you know about Jesus's ministry, about Jesus's family, particularly the second most famous family member of Jesus after Mary, his mother, and that is John the Baptist. We call him Christ's crazy cousin. And in Luke chapter three, verses one through 23, we're gonna learn a lot about this individual and how he impacted the world for Jesus Christ and how he changes our faith even to this day. We all have that one specific relative, don't we? Right? How many of you have that one specific relative? You know what I'm talking about? The, the out there one. You know, we don't talk about Bruno. No, no, we don't talk about Bruno. You know, they're a little eccentric, maybe a little evil, maybe a little odd, maybe a little unconventional, a little unusual. How many of you know who you're talking about in your family? Raise your hand. How many of you say, oh, we've got that person? Some of you aren't raising your hand. That's because it's you. You're actually that person. They, they don't, you don't know. They don't, you didn't know that everybody viewed you. That way, you're the guy, you're the gal, you're the crazy cousin. Brent, for me, Brent. Brent uh, was my cousin who lived in Pennsylvania, the woods of Pennsylvania. I lived in the city of Las Vegas. He lived in the woods of Pennsylvania. And every couple years, we'd travel out there, drive across the country, over the river and through the woods to grandmother's house we would go. And we would arrive and see cousin Brent. And Brent was awesome, man. Brent was like was like um, Huck Finn living incarnate. That's who he was, to me at least, growing up here in the city. I mean, he would, he would, um, yeah, he would, he would steal apples from the neighbor's tree. We stole gum from the 7-Eleven. That's what we did, you know, it was very different. He would swim all summer in the cricks of uh, Pennsylvania. We would swim in our above ground doughboy swimming pool, right? So we were similar, but different worlds in which we grew up in. And Brent loved, loved when we came out. We loved hanging out with Brent. I remember one time we're sitting uh, beside the crick. By the way, if you're from the Northeast, they call it a crick. If you're from the South, you call it a creek. But we're by the crick out there in, in PA, Western Pennsylvania. And, uh, and we're standing there and having fun, splashing down in the water. And I'm probably at this point, eight, nine years old. My brother's probably 10, 11 years old. And Brent is right between us, about, about 10 years old. And we're sitting there playing in the water, picking up crawdads, trying to catch fish. And he looks over and says, hey, you wanna go swimming in my swimming hole? I said, your swimming hole? He said, yeah. 
He said, we just have to follow the creek down the way around the bend. It's not too far. Do you want to go swimming in the swimming hole? And we're like, absolutely we do. So we don't tell mom and dad. We tell nobody. We start following Brent into the woods of Western Pennsylvania, down the creek as far as we could, past the bend, through the woods. I mean, we were a long way. And suddenly we came across one of the most picturesque, beautiful swimming holes any Huck Finn would have ever wanted in his life. We came through it, and I'll remember the woods broke out. There was a little bit of a meadow. You walked up to the creek, and somewhere down river or down the creek, there was some kind of a beaver dam. Something had stopped up the water a little bit and created this giant swimming hole, probably from me to around this third or fourth row here. And it was deep, and it was dark. And when you stuck your foot in, it was cold. And Brent said, let's go. And so Brent was the kind of guy who did not wait around and debate. You know what I mean? Brent was the kind of guy that, man, when you're supposed to jump in, you jump. And so before I knew it, I look around and Brent was already stripping all of his clothes off all the way down to his whitey tighties, running and jumping right into the middle of the pool, cannonball screaming and yelling, came up out of the water going, this did not look like something I wanted to do. So I looked down, my brother looked at me, he said, you going in? I said, are you going in? At that point, all the cousins began to jump in, swimming around. And Brent looked up and he saw my hesitation. He saw that I was a little nervous about it. He said, come on in. And I said, I'm gonna. And I came up to the edge and I got a little nervous. He said, come on, jump in. And I got to the edge and I was a little nervous. And finally he said, hold on, just wait right there. He came up beside me and, he, and I remember him walking toward me and he said, let's walk out on this log. So we walked out on the log. You know what's coming, I did not. <laughs> And he said, do you really want to go in? I said, yeah, I want to go in. Before I could say, yeah, I want to go in, he had already pushed me into the water. And I was sinking down into the water. Now, I didn't die that day, clearly, or I would not be here. But I did freeze, and I came up out of the water. I looked at him, and I've never forgotten the image of 10-year-old Brent, my cousin, looking down, laughing in my face as I, as I, as I, as I swam around. I say, did you have a good time? Man, did I have a good time. And I learned that day that sometimes you need someone to push you to do what you know you should do. That's what John the Baptist was. John the Baptist was not that for Jesus. Jesus was already on his own journey, called by his father to do his own thing. But what John the Baptist was for the rest of us, humanity, was the one who was willing to push us out of our comfort zone to do that which God has called us to do. And maybe today this sermon will do just that for you. Maybe it'll push you to receive Christ or it'll encourage you to get baptized or it encourage some of us to realize our story is not about us, it's more about God himself. So let's go ahead and look at this crazy cousin of Jesus Christ and realize this main thought, it's time to get pushed out of your comfort zone. How did John the Baptist push the people of God? Well, he did so in three ways. And the first we'll look at is number one, his message. Can you say number one with me? His message. Say with me, his message. What was the message of John the Baptist? We find it in John chapter, excuse me, Luke chapter three, verses one and following. Look what it says. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, oh, stop, important moment, wait. The 15th year of Tiberius Caesar, this is one of the first opportunities we get in the gospel to really 
date with significance and certainty when all of this is taking place. Many wonder why the gospel of Luke is longer than the other gospels. And one of the reasons is because Luke gives us all sort of historical markers so that we can study this for those who are especially interested in history. So if it's the 15th year of the reign of Caesar Tiberius, we can actually look back and realize, oh, that's actually 28 AD, AD 28, uh, 28 years uh, uh, in the year of our Lord. And so now we have a date here. Now, what happens in this date? Well, the word of the Lord came to a prophet named John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. This is significant because it had been 400 years, 400 years since God had sent a prophet to the nation of Israel. The last one was a man named Malachi. And Malachi told the people, if you don't get right with God and do this religion from the heart, then God will be drawn away from you. And sure enough, God was drawn away from the nation of Israel. For 400 years, they waited in silence for a prophet from God to come. A prophet like Moses, a prophet like Jeremiah, a prophet like Isaiah, a prophet like Elijah. Then out of the wilderness steps a a kooky, crazy, creepy, odd-looking dude named John the Baptist. And he went into all the region round about Jordan. Jordan is a river valley that separates modern-day Jordan from Israel and the West Bank. It's still there to this day. And he traveled up and down this riverbank area, and he preached all the way from Galilee, all the way down to Judea, all the way to the Dead Sea, and he preached up and down this river, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sin. What did he preach about? He preached baptism and repentance for the remission of sin. He preached what you need to do is repent. Repent. Repent means to change your mind and it leads to a change of action. These people were thinking wrong, therefore they were doing wrong. And so he told them to repent and be baptized. Now this guy, John, he really was, he was a weirdo. I mean, by all accounts, he was a strange guy. He did not like to live in the cities. He did not like to live even in the villages. He did not even like to live in the, in the little farms. John liked to live like a hermit out in the middle of the desert by himself. Now, he did not live with people. Also, he did not necessarily dress like everyone else. Uh, Not in Luke's gospel, but in the other gospels, they tell us he dressed in camel's hair. You say, what, what kind of fashion statement was that? Well, some of us think in the Bible times, we think everybody dressed like, you know, like just ancient cave dwellers. It's not true. During this time, this was the Greco-Roman era. These people would have been dressed in very nice tunics, very nice clothes, very, very well, uh, very comfortable, nice, fashionable. This man, the way he dressed, is he decided when he saw a dead camel on the side of the road, bloating and maggot infested, he thought, that's a nice piece of clothing there. And he took a knife and cut out of a camel the skin of the camel, dried the skin of the camel and thought this will be a good outfit. This is the kind of guy we're talking about. He walked around in camel's hair and he ate for dinner, the Bible says, locusts and wild honey. Grasshoppers is how he ate his food. Now, I know some of you have had some really weird fad diets, but if any of you come to me with the John the Baptist diet, I am not on board, you understand? 
Locusts and wild honey, grasshoppers and whatever he could dig up out of the ground, this is what the man ate. But he also preached different than the rest of the preachers during the day. He was a prophetic voice. He preached with boldness. In fact, there's a story I'm going to tell you later on, I think in the month of March, where John the Baptist walks right up to a king who had been committing a sexual affair, and he confronts the king to his face. He yells at him and says, you're not right with God, you need to get right with God. It doesn't turn out too well. They cut his head off. This is the end story of John the Baptist. Spoiler alert, he's gone. You're going to hear all about that in the weeks to come. This is the kind of guy we're talking about. He was Christ's crazy cousin. You say, what specifically was his message? Well, uh, gratefully from God, we actually have an example of what John the Baptist would preach right here in these verses. Luke chapter 3 verses four and following, uh, verses three and following, we actually see a message. And in the message, we see three specific metaphors. Say, what is a metaphor? Well, it it symbolizes something. It's, It's one thing represents another. They say, if you can't learn with a metaphor, we might need to use a two before. Okay, that's hopefully we don't have to do that today. So John was able to teach through metaphors, and he uses three. The first metaphor he uses is that of um, uh, scattering snakes. Look, Look at verse number seven. Look at what it says in verse seven. And John said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. This is a great way to start a speech, by the way, if you have a... If you're a public speaker, this is a great way to, if you're in school and you've taken a speech class, great way to start and be like, you bunch of jerks. Like, this is not a great way to, I don't like any of you, but this is how he starts his, this is how he starts his sermon. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? He calls them a bunch of slithering, scattering snakes. You know, like, like when animals can sense that an earthquake or a tsunami is coming and suddenly they realize, oh my goodness, I gotta get out of here. And all of a sudden you see the birds go and you're watching a movie and the aliens before they attack, you know they're gonna attack because you got the movie. But before, but, but they, the, the characters don't know and you know all of it's about to happen and the birds go first and then the animals go by and you're like, ooh, creation knows. That's what he's saying. He's saying to the thousands of people that would gather to hear, and that's exactly what would happen with John. John would preach out in the wilderness and you would think nobody would wanna go listen to this lunatic, but instead the synagogues were emptying, the religious places of worship were emptying, the temple was emptying and they were all going out to hear this lunatic out by the river preach. And then when he got there, they got there, he looked at them all, he pointed at them and said, you're like a bunch of scattering snakes. Something tells you something bad is coming. That's why you're out here. So metaphor number one, God is coming, you're right. Something's triggered you to seek the truth. You sense that something is coming. And maybe in your life, before I go on, maybe, maybe in your life, there's a part of you that senses that something is coming. Maybe there's a part of you that, that deep down, if it was you in a dark room with God and your thoughts, no phone, No television, no media, no music, just you, God, alone with your thoughts. Deep down somewhere inside of your soul, you also know that there is a God. You also know that you've sinned against that God. 
And you also know that judgment is coming for you. You know these things inherently. And so when you hear truth, though the world attempts to stifle it from you, when you hear truth, God gives you a moment, you awaken to it and you're drawn to it. And so this is what he's saying. And so he calls them to repent, to repent. What do they repent of? Well, there were two groups of people that Paul... That, that John was preaching to. The first group of people he was preaching to were a bunch of, and by the way, as I explain these two groups, try to categorize which one you might fall into. I know which one I fall into. <laughs> Here they go. Two groups of people. The first group was a bunch of wicked sinners that screwed up their lives and did a lot of stupid stuff and they're kind of a mess. And so they're there at the riverbank. They're like, yeah, I screwed up pretty bad. I need help. They're just sinners who know they're sinners. And so he says to them, repent of your sin. He doesn't hug them and be like, everything's gonna be okay. Nobody's ever been made like you. You're the greatest. He's like, no, you are screwed up. Repent and come back to God. Then there was another group of people. The other group of people were the religious elite. They loved to come here, John. They, those, that was the group of people who, who genuinely have done pretty good for themselves. Well, they, they've, they've, they've taken Dave Ramsey's financial course and they've saved for the future and they've been religious. They go to the temple. They're financially secure and, and intellectually superior. They're not like these people. <laughs> they're religious. They're good. God loves them. If God would love anybody, God would love us. They were the sons of Abraham. And, and these two groups of people, and so John had two groups, but he had one message. Repent and be baptized. He, to the sinner, he's like, you're right. You're really screwed up. Repent. Get right with God. Get baptized. To the religious people, he wanted them to not repent of their sin. He wanted them to repent of their religion. You, you are not as good as you think you are. Now, I don't know about you, which category you might find yourself in, but in my life, there have been times I have found myself in both categories thinking of myself better than I really should because I've really done well for myself in life. And moments that I've been reminded, I'm just a wicked, godless sinner. And in both cases, I need to repent of my sin and repent of myself and come to Jesus Christ for salvation. And so this is what Paul is saying, number one, with his first metaphor of scattering snakes. Then he gives another metaphor I find fascinating called fruitless trees. I call it fruitless trees. Here's the metaphor in verses 10 through uh, in verses eight and nine. Therefore, he says, bear fruits worthy of repentance. He says, you're like a tree. You need to bear fruits. And do not begin to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. For I say unto you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these very stones. And even now as the ax is laid to the root of the trees, therefore every tree that does not bear fruit, good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Metaphor number two John says, you're like a forest and God's like a farmer. Now, now imagine you decided to buy a fruit tree and put it in your backyard because you would like nice oranges. And even your HOA agreed to it after 45 meetings. Yes, you're allowed. 
you're allowed, you're now as a human are allowed to have your own very orange tree. Isn't it wonderful? They agreed to it. Now you have an orange tree in your backyard and the orange tree is growing. And as the orange tree grows, the year goes by, two years goes by, three years goes by, no oranges. Five years goes by, 10 years goes by, no oranges. And you're like, why don't I have oranges? And you start to get upset with the tree. What's wrong with this tree? You're right, something is wrong with the tree because an orange tree should give... Yes, thank you, sir. Thank you, one person here. An orange tree should give oranges. That's right. An orange tree should give oranges. And if it doesn't, you're frustrated. So imagine now you don't have one tree. Imagine you have thousands of trees. You're a farmer. You come to the piece of land and you're like, what's the deal? None of these trees are giving oranges. So what am I going to do? Well, there's going to be a guy with an ax because the land is still valuable. He's going to cut out all of the orange trees and plant new trees. Now, John was specifically talking to an audience of the Israelites who were not bearing fruit of believing in God. They were not living right. So, God, so John was saying to them, the land will one day no longer be yours. He's gonna plant others here. However, there's another application for us. And the application for us is that if we truly are believers, there will be fruit of our belief in Jesus Christ. The message is pretty clear. The message is God is coming and knows the difference between a believer and a pretender. Let me say that again. Listen to me, listen to me. Those who claim to be Christians, every man and woman, teenager, boy and girl, listen to me. God is coming and he knows the difference between a believer and a pretender. You say, well, what does a believer look like, pastor? Well, John's message continues and actually gives us a few examples of what believer, if you're a repentive believer in God, what'll happen is your life will show that you follow Christ. That's what will happen. There'll be outward examples. And so he gives a few actually here. The first one that he gives, look at what he says in verses 10 through 14. The first one is that rich people will give to poor people. If you're a believer, this is what will happen. So the people asked him saying, okay, what shall we do? Okay, after you've repented and been baptized, this is what a believer will actually do. He answered and said to them, he who has two tunics, let him give the second one to one who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. His point is this, don't tell me you're a believer if you are stingy and you don't help the poor. It's fake, it's false, it's phony, it's not real. You're a pretender. Because an orange tree will give oranges and a believer will act like they believe in Christ. Does this make sense? Or believe in God at this point. Here he gives another example. Businessmen and governors will be honest. Verse 12, then tax collectors came to him to be baptized and said, teacher, teacher, what shall we do? And he said, if you're a true believer, collect no more than what is appointed to you. See, the tax collectors at that time, they would come and they'd be like, they'd be like, oh man, I looked you up, dude. You owe like 10 shekels to Rome. And you'll be like, how much do I owe? And they'll be like, oh, you owe um, 15 shekels. And you'll be like, 15? I thought you just said 10. And they'll be like, yeah, yeah, it's, it's 15. I read it. Can I see that? No, just give me 15. And then they would take your 15 shekels. They would send 10 to Rome. Now your taxes are paid. And they would pocket the five. They were corrupt politicians. They were corrupt government officials. They were corrupt business people. Now, you might say, well, that's the way the world works. That's the way the world works. Yes, that's not the way believers work. If you're a believer in Christ and your answer is, well, everybody does this, 
everybody that is part of that world does. You're not part of that world. Repent. It means, it could be, according to what John is saying, you never repented. Because if you repented, the moment you met Christ, the moment you were truly saved, born again, your life should have had an altering difference to you. It was a change of mind about your religion that leads to a change of action. It was a change of mind about your lifestyle that leads to a change of action. It was a change of mind about your sin that leads to a different life. And so we say, they're coming to him and they're saying, how do we know if we're really believers? Because if you're a believer, you will give to the poor. Your powerful uh, business and governors will be honest. And then he gives another one, verse 13, verse 13, uh, or verse 14. The powerful will avoid corruption, extortion, and bribery. Look what he says in verse 14. How do I know if I'm really... Likewise, the soldiers came to him and said to John, what shall we do? And they said, and the soldiers said, and he said unto the soldiers, do not intimidate anyone and accuse falsely and be content with your wages. Roman soldiers that are becoming believers are coming. They're like, well, what about us, John? He says, well, if you're true believers, you're not gonna be complaining about your pay all the time. You're not gonna be uh, extorting money out of people. You're not gonna be pulling people over and asking for bribes. See, but that's what everybody does. Not believers, that's his point. His, his point is, his message is, number one, scattering snakes. You know something's coming. Number two, fruitless trees. If you're a fruit tree that's not bearing fruit, it could be that the ax is coming and you're being thrown to the fire because you were never a believer in the first place. And then number three, metaphor number three, smart farmer. Smart farmer. How many of you believe the farmer knows what he's doing? Can I get an amen? Some of you are a little confused. What do I mean by that? God. How many of you believe God knows what he's doing? Can I get an Amen. Look at what he goes, verse 15, it says, now as the people were in expectation, imagine all these thousands of people on the riverbank listening to Jesus. Look, it says, now the people were in expectation and all reasoned within their hearts about John, whether he was the Christ or not, everybody thought Jesus or that John was the Messiah because he was like really famous. He was like the most famous person now in all of Israel. Everybody knew who this guy was. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people would follow him. John answered and said to all of them, I indeed baptize you with water, but there's somebody coming who is mightier than I am. I, I'm not even worthy to unstrap the sandals and to loose his sandals from his feet. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. This is what he says. He says, I'm not the one, but the one is coming. And when he baptizes you, I'm baptizing with water. When he baptizes you, some of you, he will baptize with the Holy Spirit. That is, he'll take the Holy Spirit. He'll place you in the Holy Spirit. He'll put the Holy Spirit around you. Your whole life will be filled and surrounded with the Holy Spirit. And some of you, he will baptize in fire. He will place you in fire. Fire will be all around you. You'll be in fire. It will be who you are. He's saying that this coming Messiah, this Jesus that we love so much and we've learned all about, when he comes, he will divide the world into two groups. Those who are filled with his spirit and those who will be filled with... Then he goes to the farmer analogy, verse 17. His winnowing fan in his hand and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor. He has his winnowing, win, winnowing fan. Well, we all know what that's like because we had our winnowing fan in our hand this morning, didn't we? You say, no, pastor, what are you talking about? Well, we don't know about winnowing fans because we don't have a lot of farmers in our church. So let me explain what our far, to our lack of farmers what a winnowing fan is. Here's a photograph of a, 
of a modern day person actually using a ancient tool to accomplish the farmer's work. What a farmer does after he sickles the wheat is he'll take the wheat and he'll place it in a big pile. And then what they'll do is they'll take a rake. Think of it like I do, maybe a rake. And, and you flip that rake upside down and you put it inside of that wheat and you throw it up in the air, you, you thresh it. And as you do, what'll happen, it breaks apart and the seeds of the wheat will fall. The grains of wheat will fall to the ground because they're heavier. And the chaff, that is the rest of the plant, will float away into another pile. So the third metaphor that John gives is, hey, everybody, get it this way. Y'all are farmers, here's what's gonna happen. Some of you are wheat. And what God's gonna do is thresh it and he's gonna take all the wheat and store it in a barn. And then he's gonna take all the chaff that's not true wheat and he's gonna pile it up and he's gonna burn it and great will be the burn of it. So then John allows the audience to sit with the question, who are you? Are you wheat or are you chaff? Will you have the Holy Spirit or will you have fire? His message is very simple. Repent of your sin or repent of your self-righteousness and receive Christ as savior and demonstrate that faith through baptism. That is his message. My message is to you the same. Hear me, hear me, brother and sister. If you have not yet repented of your sin and received Christ as savior, your very soul is in danger of hell fire. Do I need to scream it to get it through? Do I need to tell a funny story to get it through? How do I need to get it through? Should I show a video? Should I write it out on? It's clear. Your soul is in danger of eternal fire if you don't repent of your sin or self-righteousness and receive Christ as my, your savior. You say, but, I, but, I, but, but, but I'm religious. John said, if God wanted to, he could raise up sons of Abraham from these stones. It, your religion means nothing. You say, does it count for a little? It counts for nothing. You say, but I'm Baptist. Even worse, even worse. Even worse. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, you must all, every single one of us, repent, repent, and be baptized, the Bible says. So number one, his message. Number two, we see his master. To understand John, you need to understand his message. To understand John, you need to understand his, his master. You say, what about the master of John? Well, when all the people, according to verse 21, that's thousands of people, when all these people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus was also baptized. This is a really cool moment in John's life and really the history of the world. They're all standing there on the riverbank. Imagine this moment. And, and made his way through the riverbank and kind of on the edge of the riverbank. Can you picture him now? There stands Jesus himself. John is down in the water, right? He just finished baptizing somebody. He's down there in his camel's hair. He smells bad. He's shouting about people going to hell. He's talking, you've got, you know, you've got locust teeth coming out his, you know, locust, locust legs coming out his teeth. And he's just out there doing his thing. And all these people are watching. And then he stops and he looks up and everybody's like, what? And he points him out. He says, there he is. This story is in John's gospel, not Luke's gospel. He says, there he is. And everybody looks. He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's the one we've been waiting for. He's the, that's the one, I'm not the one, that's the one. And the thing that happens next is amazing. He comes down and he gets baptized. And the Bible says that as he's baptized, you can read it in the passage, 
the Holy Spirit of God descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. And a voice from heaven, a voice from heaven, like God the Father's voice from heaven shouts down, this is my beloved son. In you, I am well pleased. Whoa. In this moment, we get a visual picture of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all in one place, all at one time. Now what happens? Jesus walks up out of the water and goes back to his home, Nazareth. What do you think is going to happen to the thousands of people who were following John? Well, we learn the story in the gospel of John chapter three. The Bible tells us that everybody, many of the people who were following John the Baptist started following Jesus. So John the Baptist at one point had thousands of people following him. Now he's out in the river and there's like four people and an old guy and he's like, yeah, who wants to be baptized? Nobody's following him anymore. They all started following Jesus. One of the disciples came to John in John chapter three, came to John the Baptist and they said, hey man, he said, you remember Jesus? He's like, yeah, the lamb of God that takes away the sin. He said, everybody that used to follow you is now following him. What are we gonna do about it to get that market share back? And John the Baptist was awesome. You can read about it in John chapter three. John the Baptist looked and said, he must increase. I must decrease. You have to understand this was a national celebrity who had lost everything and he had given over all of his credibility to Jesus Christ. Do you know why John was able to do that? Here's why. Because John understood that his little life was just a tiny part of the bigger story. That his life was not about his life. His life was about his life. Let me ask you a question as a follower of Jesus. Have you come to that conclusion yet in your life? Have you come to the place where you realize that your life is not about you? Your life is part of a bigger story. That is the message of God. Hey, you better get there quick. If not, you could really screw up the story. In fact, that's exactly what happened to one of my favorite TV shows. How many of you remember this show? How many of you remember this show? Remember, how many of you remember, how many of you remember the Brady Bunch? You remember the Brady Bunch? Man, how many of you loved the Brady Bunch growing up? You like, so did I. I watch all sorts of, re, I, I watched the reruns growing up and I loved the Brady Bunch. Uh, everybody felt bad for Jan, you know? All the guys were in love with Marsha. Everybody hated Greg. Everybody hated Greg. I mean, that's the truth of it. We watched season after season. And the way I grew up watching on TBS, you never knew which episode you were watching, what season it was. But when we grew up and got older, I started watching them. I watched them season through season. Season one, two, three, four, five. And there is a steep drop-off, if you ever watch this show, at the creativity and the, 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 the goodness of the show as season five. And it actually gets canceled after season five. I mean, the show's done. It's just done. And a lot of people throughout history are like, why did the show get canceled? It's so popular. Five seasons. Why didn't it go like nine seasons or 10 seasons? Why didn't it like Friends or Seinfeld? Why didn't it go forever? And, and there's a real specific reason for that. The answer was given by a guy named Sherman Schwartz, who was the uh, producer and writer of The Brady Bunch, head, head writer and producer. They asked him, why didn't it go farther? What happened to The Brady Bunch? And this is what he said. It's really fascinating. He said, the kids became so famous after season three that they began to demand through their agents, their own storylines. 
they would come in and they would be like, my, and so season four had a little at the end in all of season five. And, and the stories, that's why season five gets weird. You get cousin Oliver, you're like, what's the deal with this guy, right? You got all these other weird things going on. The kids are all going in different directions. And it was like this thing that used to be a cohesive, cool story about a family became this weird mess at the end. Why? Because each of the individual characters thought the story was about themselves. They didn't realize they were all part of a bigger story. What I love about John's example to us is that he understood Jesus is the master, I'm the servant. He must increase, I must decrease. What is God doing in your life right now that it seems like he's decreasing you? Is it possible through decreasing you, he is increasing his own name? So first we see his message, second we see his master, and lastly we'll see his method. John the Baptist's method was baptism. That's why they call him John the Baptizer. Yes, he wore camel's hair and, and ate locusts and wild honey, but what's really interesting about him is that what he would do is identify people's faith through the public waters of baptism. Now, even to this day, Christians have taken this tradition because Jesus told us to and have passed this tradition down for thousands of years to the point where followers of Jesus are baptized even to this day. We do it every single month here at the church. Many, many people get baptized. Now, why do we do it? Well, we do it for three reasons, obedience, symbolism, and identification. The first reason, I always share this with Christians that are new Christians that have never been baptized, or maybe you were baptized as a baby, but you don't remember, so it really had nothing to do with you. It was more like a family ritual. We say, why should you personally decide to be baptized? The answer is very simple, obedience. Because Jesus asked us to be baptized, we choose to obey and get baptized. Let me ask you this question. Have you obeyed Jesus Christ and have you chosen for yourself to pursue Christ through the waters of baptism? Have you done so? The first one is obedience. The second reason we get baptized is out of symbolism, what we call symbolism. It's like a metaphor, symbolism. Symbolism, it, it means this. Symbolism means the thing is not the thing, but it symbolizes the thing. Baptism is an outward expression of an inward decision that was already made. Baptism doesn't save your soul, but it symbolizes how your soul was saved. It's an outward expression of an inward decision. Say it with me. Outward expression of an inward decision. Say it again, say it again. Outward expression of an inward decision. It's like my wedding ring. See my ring? What does this ring tell you about me? What, is it, what does this ring tell you about me? That I'm married. Did we ever have this conversation before? How did you know this? Because culturally, we all understand when a guy's wearing a ring on this finger, it means he's married. I'm gonna say, what does the ring mean? You say he's married. What does the ring mean? All right, very good. What if I took the ring off? Does that mean I'm not married? No, some guys would like to believe that that's the case. It's not the case. The ring is on, the ring is off. You're still married. Why? Because the ring is not your marriage. The ring is a symbol of the fact that you're married. Does this make sense, right? All right, my, my brother right here, you get, we're good friends, right? You're a single brother, he's available ladies, all right? Afterward, I'll put up his phone number, right? If you took and put this ring on, would that make you married, yes or no? No, why? Because the ring is not marriage, it's a symbol of marriage. Does this make sense? 
Baptism is the same thing. A lot of people think, well, I got baptized, therefore I'm saved. No, 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 your baptism didn't save you. Baptism is simply an outward expression of an inward decision. It's symbolism. My question to you is this, have you been baptized after salvation? If you've been saved, why would you not follow Christ in baptism? Say, well, I don't know if I wanna go through all of that. That's like saying to somebody, yeah, I wanna be married, but I'm not gonna wear the ring. I don't want people to know, you know what I mean? It's an outward expression of the inward decision. So there might be those in the room today who out of a sense of obedience, out of a sense of symbolism, need to make the decision to be baptized because you've never done so. Number three is identification. The third reason we give, according to the Bible, for baptism is because when you are baptized, you are identifying with Jesus Christ, the one who was also baptized. You're following in his pathway. Any football fans in the room? Anybody like football? Raise your hand if you like football. Okay, a couple of you, clearly, right? Okay, if you like some football, all right? How many of you, how many of you got a game later today? How many of you were upset about yesterday? A lot of you, okay, a lot of you upset about yesterday. All right, imagine this. Your favorite football team is out there playing on the field and there's one guy who refuses to wear the jersey. How long is that guy gonna last on the team if he refuses to wear the jersey? How long? They're gonna get rid of him, why? Because if you don't wear the jersey, you're not part of the team. Does the jersey make him a football player? No, but the jersey identifies him as part of the team. What does baptism do? Baptism identifies you as part of the team. Means you're part of the family of God. It identifies you as part of the family of God. So this is the reason why we are baptized. As I prepared this message to talk about John the Baptist today, I really began to think, okay, what is it that we need to know before we continue with the story of Jesus about this character that is very central to the coming story? And the answer is this, we have to know his message. His message is repent of your sin and your self-righteousness. His, his master is Jesus. He must increase, I must decrease. And his method was baptism by immersion in the water. And if you've never repented and received Christ, you should. If you're a Christian that needs to humble yourself and say, you increase, I decrease, you should. And if you're a Christian who's never been baptized today, you can make that decision. I hope that you will. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you so much for allowing us to learn from the example of this, this guy who was willing to push others <laughs> into places that they knew they needed to go. I pray that today each and every one of us would be willing to follow you as you've so called us. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. If God has used this message to impact your life, we would love to hear from you. Please send an email to connectdesk at southernhillslv.com. If you would like to support this ministry financially, you can do so at southernhillslv.com slash give. We are always encouraged to hear how God is using this church in Las Vegas to reach God's people around the world.